Good morning, friends. Welcome. Welcome, Lou. Welcome. Welcome to the 100th episode. Huh? How exciting. Yes. I am so excited and I have to confess I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> Why? <laughs> this is our 100th time. You shouldn't be it, nervous. <laughs> it, it, I, it is true. It's the 100th time and I have nothing to gain from this and I have nothing to lose from this. So I shouldn't be nervous. Right. But I know from a lot of friends and a lot of relatives who are eager to see this that I don't want to make it uh, sloppy, but so without ado, we, what we're going to do, friends, normally we make this like a 20 or 30 minute session. Listen to it while you're driving in the car. Mm -hmm. But today it's going to be a lot longer, uh, one hour. And as Lou said to me before we started, maybe we can even go into uh, another session if it's not over. So I don't rush it uh, in right. the first hour. So before I start, I want to give thanks to the gurus from whom I learned. I, and everything I say, none of this, none is from my head. Everything I have learned from others. And those are the stalwarts, the major gurus uh, like Swami Vivekananda, Swami Chinmayananda, Swami Parthasarthi, uh, Gautam Jain, under whom I studied, uh, and then various others like Swami Sarvapriyananda, Swami Nikhilananda, Swami Tadatmananda, Swami uh, Swamini, um, Nilay Sevani, and so on. So my thanks to them, and I'm passing on to you the knowledge that I got from them as they passed on to us what knowledge they got from their superiors. And this goes back all the way to the beginning of when the Upanishads were written. So let me start with a little bit of a story that I have always been fascinated as a scientist, as a physician, with how our ancient rishis and munis knew things that we are not even know today. We don't even know today. How yeah. did they know the speed of light? How did they know the distance between planets? How did they know which that 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 the sun revolved around the center of the galaxy which most people don't even know today and they knew the speed it, in, at which it revolved all of this how did they know that my son who's a physician and is in his mid 30s i had sent him something that showed somebody from iit i forget his name uh, a parsi gentleman was talking about how the ancient rishis knew about the space and it was a fascinating a uh, little clip video mm -hmm. and he my son said to me dad come on these people didn't even have telescopes back then right and i didn't say anything to him because it would have been too long a dis discussion but that's one of the things i'm going to be focusing on today to say how did these it was one of the questions i had for you and we talked about the galactic center because you can't see the galactic center we can't see it to this day so how do you intuitively understand that it exists I'm going to try and answer that for you, for my son, and for everybody else that had questions like I did back then, today. So today we're going to be talking about consciousness, and that's what the first thing we're going to be talking about. The second, I'm going to be talking about what happens when we die. What leaves our body? We always think we say, you know, the soul or the Atman leaves the body, goes uh, somewhere else. What is heaven? What is hell? What is sin? And I'm going to be talking a lot about karma, which is a very important topic. Those are the three topics I've got chalked out for us for the 60 <laughs> minutes that we've reserved for this. That's the 100th episode special, guys. All right. So many years ago, 
I attended a lecture among where there were many scientists who were talking about what the ancients knew. One of those scientists, they're all fascinating. I have it recorded. I have it on video. It's I play it back sometimes. It's so fascinating. But somebody who has since become a friend, Subhash Kak, you can look it up. Its last name is spelled K-A-K, easy to remember. And he wrote an article called Speed of Light in Ancient Times, in Puranic Times. And what he said was, in one of the ancient scriptures, there's a statement that says 2,202 yojanas per half a nimesha, you who travel at that speed, O sun. And it goes on from there. It's like a verse. It's like a poetry. So he said, what does this mean? 2,202 yojanas in half a nimesha. What is a yojana? What's a nimesha? And he speaks Sanskrit. He's a uh, professor in, as an electrical scientist. And he does um, all kinds of things. He's very brilliant. You should look him up. Mm -hmm. Kak, K-A-K. And he then took these terms of 2,202 yojanas in half a nimesha. And it came out, you're not going to believe this, Lou, to the exact speed of light as we know it today. Exact. It's amazing. And he, when I asked him why in his paper, he said, it's such a coincidence that thousands of years ago, the ancient rishis knew the speed of light and they put it down like this. And they always disguised these so it didn't fall into the wrong hands. I said, why did you say it's a coincidence? Why didn't you say they were able to decipher the speed of light? And he gave me reasons. He said, people are naysayers. And if I say that they knew back then, he said they would, you know, give me a reason. Sure. Um, so, but I say that they knew the speed of light. They knew, he also in his lectures and the other scientists knew the exact circumference of the earth, the diameter of the earth, the distance to the moon, the distance to the planets, to the square, to the foot. Very brilliant. How did they know this? That's really the question. Right. So rishis and munis would go up. By the way, rishis and munis mean sages. Sages would go up to the mountains, Himalayas, in order to get away from distraction, from population, from noise, from other things. They'd sit in the icy cold mountains, completely naked except for one loincloth with no possessions. And they would meditate for hours on end. Um, and I think I told you this in one of my earlier episodes that there was a young girl of 19 in yep. England who mm -hmm. left England, went to uh, Tibet and joined a monastery. And then she made a video of herself sitting in these mountains, completely cold, covered by snow for 12 years. They made her sit like that. So uh, 12 is the magic number where people do this to get realization, self-realization. But she did it. These rishis and munis did it. And what they've said is, one of the first things they said in terms of consciousness. Now, Lou, you asked me a question before about what is the difference between what we think of in terms of being conscious and consciousness, right? right. Yes. So right now, I am conscious. What does that mean? It means I am conscious of my surroundings. I know that there's a screen in front of me. I am conscious of the fact that I can see you, Lou, on the screen. I'm conscious of the fact that I'm sitting on this chair, right. etc. I am conscious of, but who is the I? That's one question. And I know what I'm conscious of, but what makes me conscious? And who is the me, the I? 
So all of these things need to be deciphered. And that which I am conscious of through this sense of consciousness is consciousness. Right. So we have said before that Brahman, which is the life-giving force behind all of us, because we no scientist knows what life is. But Brahman, according to the ancients, Brahman is Sat, Chit, and Anand. Sat means existence. Because I can say this hand exists. Mm -hmm. But what is existence? I am conscious of this hand, but what is consciousness? I am happy, but what is happiness? And the ancient said, Sat Chit Anand, existence, consciousness, and pure, complete bliss is what is Brahman. So consciousness, they said, they use the metaphor of Akasha. Akasha is the first of the five elements that they described. Akasha is space. And they said space has no boundaries. It has no limits. It just goes on forever and ever. And they, when they did their meditation, they said limitless, boundaryless, and consciousness, they said, is the same. So if consciousness is just like space, meaning it has no boundaries, but we say that's not true, right? I, I know what my boundaries are in terms of consciousness. But... What the Rishis and Muni said is that this consciousness is all-pervasive, just like, just like space is. Um, we only experience this consciousness within our bodies. This is an important thing to take, to take note of. Because I am conscious of everything I touch, what I smell, because we use our five senses. Our five senses distract us and keep us from going beyond our bodies with the five senses. Our mind, which has emotions, keeps us from going beyond our consciousness. Our intellect thinks about fame, power, decision-making, this way or that way. All of that limits our consciousness to where we are. That's a very important thing. Now, if my nerves, so right now I'm conscious of my body. If something were to poke me, if something were to burn me, I would know right away I got burned. But if something were to burn this uh, chair that's next to me, I wouldn't know it. Although right. consciousness exists in everything. So keep in mind, friends, that I said to you in many of the earlier episodes that when I was a child, my mother said to me that God exists in everything. Whether you know it or not, God definitely, you can see God, Brahman, in every living being, but it also exists in every non-living entity. I didn't believe her. I was a child. I didn't believe her. I said, how is that possible? God, mm -hmm. and she said, you learn as time goes on. And that was one of the things among mother, many that always pervaded my consciousness to be able to see what my mother was talking about. And now I understand it. So consciousness pervades everything. I don't know it because my sense organs don't go to the chair. If my sense organs, my skin, my ability to touch went to that chair and somebody sat on it, I would feel it because mm -hmm. my consciousness relies on my nerves in order to feel that consciousness. Did I make that clear, Lou? Yes. Okay. So if my nerves pervaded an outside object, my consciousness would perceive it. But because it doesn't, because my nerves don't, I'm not able to perceive outside objects. That's the first point I want to make to you. 
Right. Your nerves are limited to your skin, so you feel that your consciousness only goes as far as the body. But imagine that you're blind and deaf and you have no senses at all. You can't feel your body, therefore you have no edge, no boundary. Your vast, boundaryless ego, actually your consciousness, thinks of everything else. So your consciousness becomes the same as the all-pervasive consciousness that Brahman has. So just a theoretical concept, because you couldn't live right. very long if you were totally blind, totally deaf, and had no of the senses. You'd go mad. So now remember that everything that you experience is limited by your, um, by your mind. Every experience that you have, you don't feel the absence of consciousness if your arm falls asleep you feel that your arm is missing. Your arm falls asleep sometimes, you put it on a chair, you fall asleep, you wake up, you say, I don't feel my arm or my leg when you're walking. You don't say, my consciousness is missing there. You say, my arm is missing, my leg is missing. Right. So you feel the sensation when your nerves are active and only when there are nerves. So where does this all get recorded? Imagine that you have a SIM card inside you just like you have in your telephone, your cell phone. Everything that you experience is carved onto that inner imaginary SIM card as if they are what are known as vrittis, V-R-I-T-I-S. This is a Sanskrit word for these carved things that remain with you and then go with the SIM card out of your body to where your, that SIM card goes next. So if you have a cell phone, you have a SIM card. That SIM card has telephone numbers, data, photographs, everything from the current camera that you have, the, sorry, the current phone that you have. Mm -hmm. And when you take a new phone, you take the SIM card out, you put it into the new uh, body, the new phone, and all that original vrittis that were on that SIM card show up on that new iPhone or phone. Similarly, our vrittis come back with us when we are born. So bear with me, just accept that for the second, and then we'll move on. We'll find out when we go to the next topic what, what I mean by this. So each vritti is a, an exercise, an experience within yourself. When I see something, when I hear something, when I smell something, when I taste something, if it is more than just ordinary, my mind immediately carves it in as a vritti. There are millions and millions of vrittis that we experience throughout the day. What is significant is that the more um, firework generating vrittis are recorded more strongly. So the first time a little boy, an adolescent, kisses a girl, for instance, that is a major vritti. It's carved down. And he mm. says, whoa, what was that? <laughs> How did that feel? The first time a child has a toy or uh, an experience, it's carved down as a vritti. Then what happens is that vritti says, I want to re-experience that. And I want to go a little bit further. And it re-experiences. And that vritti carries on in the SIM card to the next life. And it says, hey, what about that vritti? Now, bear with me. There are millions of these vrittis, so only some of the vrittis actually show themselves actively in the next life. They can't all show themselves, so bear with me. So 
the main three forms of vrittis are those generated by the body, the mind, and the intellect. So the body's vrittis are what you see, the five senses, and the five organs of action, five or, or sense organs. So you have a uh, sexual experience for the first time, and it just generates a major, that's one of the major ones. It's carved in as a vritti. Um, you see something that you say, oh my God, that is some vision. That is carved in as a vritti. You smell something, you taste something. All of these are major vrittis. So the body is those five sense organs and five uh, organs of action that carve vrittis. The mind, emotions. So the first time somebody falls in love, he has emotions of love. That's carved as a pure vritti. The first time you get sadness, that love leaves you, that's carved in as a vritti. So emotions. And the third is intellect, you know, fame, power, decision-making, etc. So those are the three types of vrittis. Now, what the rishis could do when they went up into the Himalayas, what the sages did, is to be able to practice meditation in order to eliminate these vrittis completely from their mind. If they eliminated these vrittis, their consciousness became like a still level of consciousness, the same as the consciousness outside that was present everywhere. Keep this in mind. It takes a lot of explanation, a lot of thinking, but it's mm -hmm. very, very significant. Now, when they opened their eyes and the meditation was broken, their vrittis returned because now they were conscious in the other sense, not the consciousness. They were conscious, they were awake, they had starved for a few days and they hadn't eaten anything and suddenly they woke up and they said, wow, I uh, am hungry, I need to eat something, otherwise I'll die. And their vrittis came back. Mm -hmm. Their vrittis were, and they're back to being a human being. But when their vrittis were not there, uh, let's imagine a pond, a lake, very still water going down deep. The lake is 100 feet deep. That's how much water there is. When it's calm, there are no ripples. Every part of the lake, it looks like one. The water is all water. When there's a strong breeze, a storm coming, and the water on the top of the lake is all waves and ripples, those mm -hmm. are considered rittis. Now, the rittis on the surface are very restless, but the bottom of the lake is very still. It's still the same water, but because of the restlessness, it doesn't act the same way. Right. Similarly, our mind, our consciousness, and the outside consciousness is all one lake. But those vrittis that we have, the disturbances of our desires and this wanting to recreate those phenomenal experiences prevent us from being one with the all-pervasive consciousness. This today, folks, is just a, just a small little smattering of this. So let's just pause there and keep that part in mind. Now, having this knowledge, you say, what, what, what benefit does it do? And it helps you understand what the consciousness is, what vrittis are, what, uh, how to get. Now, if you want to take this further, imagine that the all-pervading consciousness could be what you and I have always looked for in terms of what is God. What is God? What is it that we seek? Is it that the Brahm, the Rishis and the Munis sat there meditating and reached God? 
by reaching becoming one with all-pervading consciousness is all-pervading consciousness with God is is that what gives us life however in order to confuse matters more <laughs> what the what the rishis and muni said is consciousness or space akasha rests in brahman so consciousness alone doesn't give you life right, right. you can plant a seed and seed has its level of consciousness, but it doesn't give you life. So that's a whole other section that we'll talk about later. But consciousness, by the very fact that is chitta, is part of Brahman, and consciousness is Brahman. Now we're getting very close to God, but may not necessarily be all of God. Right. Now, I said that which makes us conscious of pain is consciousness. But what is it that makes us aware of this pain? What is it that makes us conscious? In the Keno Upanishad, it says, what is it that makes us aware? You are the knower, the witness. And the Keno Upanishads are very confusing, but very clear if you understand it. It says, you are the ear of the ear, the mind of the mind, meaning you as the inner Atman is the ear of the ear. Your ear is this, sound goes in through there, goes to your mind, and only when you as the Atman registers it, you know, right? right? The ear of the ear. So if I'm sitting there reading a book, I've given this example before, and my wife is calling out my name and saying dinner's ready, and I'm so wrapped up, my mind, I am so wrapped up in my book, she doesn't hear me. What has happened is the sound waves came into my ear, went into my mind, but my mind said, I don't want to hear anything. Right now I'm so focused on this. The ear of the ear, the Atman, the consciousness did not perceive it. My ear heard it, the sound waves entered, but I did not register it. So the Keno Upanishad says that you are the Atman inside that hears the sound sees the sights and you are the mind of the mind you are pure consciousness which is chitta your mind is vast like a lake but there are ripples or vrittis in it it is all recorded and the activity is witnessed by your consciousness um, all experiences by the way are within the mind nothing is external to the mind so if you look at your experience, whether it's something you see or you hear or whatever, it's all inside your mind, not outside. So that is just a brief primer on consciousness. And now I want to go to what happens to us when we die. Mm -hmm. um, any things you want to add, Lou, or ask I, about? I kept thinking of the old question, if a tree falls in the forest, does it, does it make a sound? And that it's that's the philosophical question we all say well it creates a sound it creates air pressure uh the sound actually happens but we're talking about if there's no one there to perceive it right if right. you don't perceive it it's not a sound right right so so similarly philosophical yeah yeah it's very philosophical this friends if you're hearing all this for the first time i don't want you to get confused but just put it away as a seed somewhere. And if you keep thinking about it and reading about it and learning about it, you will get uh, clearer and clearer on this whole thing. I don't want to confuse you anymore. Right. Anyway, the 
Second part is what happens when we die? Is there such a thing as heaven? No, there isn't. Is there such a thing as hell? No, there isn't. What about these experiences that people have when they die? You know, they think about um, they think about afterlife experiences, etc. What does all that mean? Yeah. So Vedanta has something called drishta anta. Drishtanta. Drishta anta. Drishta means um, seeing, um, showing itself, and anta means end. So atma and soul has many different meanings. Atma itself has maybe dozens of meanings in the Sanskrit dictionary. And soul is very different from conceptually from what Atman is. Atma is consciousness, as we discussed just now. It's all pervasive. It's the inner self of all beings. So we say Atma leaves the body. If it is all pervasive, how can it leave the body? How can it move? Imagine that you have a pot that is immersed in the ocean. Right. And you're saying that the water that's inside the pot, the seawater, and the water that's outside, which is seawater, is all the same. And if you take a hammer inside the ocean and you hit it underwater to that pot, the pot breaks. Did that ocean water move? It's still exactly where it was. It's just that the pot is broken. Right. So if our body has this Atman within and it's all pervasive and the body drops, the Atman, I'm telling you, um, so you don't have to, I'm not asking you a question, doesn't move. It's all pervasive. So the Atman doesn't move, the body just drops. So then what happens? I'm dead, my body's dead. So what happened to that SIM card? The SIM card is considered the causal body and the subtle body. The intelligence, the vasanas, the karmas, the uh, senses that I have, all of that is put on that SIM card and it travels to outside the body, waiting for, depending on what kind of karmas I've done, a new body. And it may wait a very short period of time, it may wait a long period of time. We don't know exactly what determines how and when I get to pick the next body, but I get to pick only if I've done good karmas. And then I can pick a good family. And, and all of this is written in the scriptures, by the way, in detail. So I get to pick a good family uh, where I can further pursue my good karmas. So the Svetasvatara Upanishad says that there is one consciousness hidden in all beings, all pervasive, the inner self of all beings, all per pervasive uh, consciousness. Now, again and again in the Gita, we've heard the term deha, which means body. And he in the Gita, he talks of the dehi, which is the indwelling being mm -hmm. that is within the body, that within the deha. The dehi is within the deha. That remains unchanged. The atma doesn't move. Only the subtle body, which is the sukshma sharira, travels. The mind is not physical, right? We know that. The thinking is not physical. The senses that you experience are not physical. The body is physical. The brain is physical. The mind isn't. The mm -hmm. brain dies. The body dies. But the mind and whatever is not physical travel. So what are the parts of the subtle body? The sukshma sharira is prana, which is the life force the powers of action and the senses, and the mind. These are the causal bodies and the vasanas and the karmas and so on. Now, 
many people don't believe in reincarnation. So there is, there are books. If you write to me, I will tell you some good books to read that will convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt that reincarnation exists. And Ian Stevenson was somebody who was Scandinavian that says, I don't believe in, in reincarnation, spent his life going from country to country as soon as somebody said somebody was reincarnated and was firmly convinced. He did hundreds of uh, case studies and said, I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that reincarnation is true. The Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls mention reincarnation. The Essenes, Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, Mm -hmm. of which Jesus was the chief, believed in reincarnation. So our um, body, causal body and subtle body, go from one uh, gross body to the next, but and it carries with us, with it, everything. Now, let's talk about our um, karma. And this is the last topic. And how, how long have it been so far, Lou? Half an hour. Half an hour, good. Karma is what you do that has an exact and opposite effect. So there's many theoretical parts to this karma. So I won't go into that right now. Let me end with that. Let me talk about the fact that just like there is a law of gravity, you drop something, it'll fall. No question about it. You, right. you fall off from the top of a building, there's no doubt that you will hit the ground. Similarly, the law of karma says, you do good, you will get back good. You do bad, you will get back bad. Whatever you do, whatever effect it has on the other person, on the environment, on anything else, you're going to reap the benefits or the um, negative effects of that action on your part. What Krishna says is you can determine only what your action is. You cannot determine the result. The right. result is based on a lot of things, other things unknowables that you don't know about. You can do an action, but the result is oftentimes based on what your karma has in the past. What does that mean? For instance, two people are both uh, studying for an exam and they study everything, but you can't study everything. So you study as much as you can, both of them study exactly the same thing or no, they don't study exactly the same thing. They study the same amount of time mm -hmm. and they go for their exam. And the questions that are asked in the exam don't have anything to do with the part that the first person studied. Right. And even though he studied, he doesn't know the exam questions because that was not what he's put his focus on. Whereas the other one did. And so he did very well. Now, you may say they both took action, they both did karma, they studied, but one got a very nice fruit, he passed his exams with flying colors, and the other didn't, but they both put just as much karma. What is that? Is that luck? Is that something that is called luck, or is that karma? Friends, there is such a thing called luck, and in fact, you should go to YouTube, and you should go to Wikipedia on Google, Type in this name called Selak, S-E-L-A-K, first name Frain or Fran, F-R-A-N-E, Frain Selak. He's supposed to be the world's luckiest man. Um, it'll take me too long to describe all of the unbelievable escapes he had with death. 
Lou, you're smiling. You know about this. I know a little bit, yeah. So Frayn Selleck was so fortunate. And then when he got to be 80 years old, after multiple, multiple unbelievable escapes from life and de from death, at the age of 80, he bought for the first time one lottery ticket. And that he won um, over a million dollars at that time. And but he gave all his wealth. He had an island, he had yachts, he had boats, he had houses. He gave all of it away and dedicated his life to Lady Fatima, to which to whom he was devoted. So he was again, in my opinion, what determines luck. If it's one time, you know, an exam that you studied and the questions were all exactly what you studied and nothing that you didn't study, you were lucky that one time. What happens again and again and again, as a scientist, you say, what's going on here, right? And that, to me, is the effect of karma. That is the effect of karma. Now, bear with me. You sow a seed today, and it grows very slowly. You don't get a fruit on it until much later. Many months, maybe years later is when you get the first fruit. Every action that you do is a seed being sowed so be very careful with your actions. If you plant a good seed, you're going to get a good fruit. You're going to plant a bad seed, you're going to get a bad fruit. Right. Now, we often say that why do bad things happen to good people? So you may be very good right now, but you get a diagnosis, God forbid, of cancer. You say, I've spent my whole life being such a good person. I never did a single bad thing in my life. Why? Now, that is explained by the seed that you planted a long time ago that is being fructified, being made into a fruit in this lifetime. So keep that in mind. There is a cause, there's an effect. Much of what you get in your lifetime today is because of your karma. But there are new issues that each time, each day that you're doing something, you're planting new issues, new karmas for the future. So imagine that you go to a bank to deposit money. You have crisp $100 bills that you got from somewhere. You go to the bank, you go, you're happy, you've got these crisp $100 bills, you go in, there's a very friendly looking, attractive, young female teller, she greets you with a very nice smile, says, hello, welcome back, and you give her the $500 bills, and she gives you a receipt. She says, it's in your account, you can come back whenever you want to withdraw your money. You go back a month later to the bank. It's a rainy, drizzly day. It's not so good. You go inside. You find a surly, not friendly teller who's grumpy. And you say, I'd like to withdraw my $500. And he takes out five crumpled little notes and gives them back to you. Do you complain? No. You walk out. You open up your umbrella and you walk out into the thing. You got your $500 back. It's not the same as what you deposit, not those crisp notes, right. not the same teller, but it's the same you. And you got back your $500, even though it doesn't look the same. So whatever seed you plant, you're going to get back an equivalent amount, but it may not be in the same form or dis it may be disguised. You may not recognize it, but it's what you did. Sometimes you get the fruit in the same lifetime, and sometimes you get it in a future lifetime. Let me give you one example. When I was 20, 21, 
my friend Giri Stelang and myself, we were on a plane. We were going from uh, Bombay to uh, Geneva. And from Geneva, we were supposed to go to, to London and then to Paris. We were just finished medical school and we were going to take an exam in Switzerland. And when we were going, as the plane took off, in those days, in 1971, planes were fairly empty. This was an Air India flight. There were not too many passengers sitting there, maybe 15 altogether. Mm -hmm. The two of us, my friend and myself, were seated on, on a seat. Two rows diagonally across on the other side was an, a woman that was maybe 20 years older than us, maybe in her 40s. And when the straight plane started revving up and the captain said, put on your seatbelts, we're ready to take off. I looked at this woman. Now, I was very eager and happy that I was going for the first time in a big plane, taking off, going to Switzerland, very excited, my friend and I. Sure. But I looked at this woman and she was gripping onto her chair very tightly. She was like, you could tell she was petrified. I just finished my medical school and I said to my friend, I said, I'm going to excuse myself. I'm going to go sit with her. Even though they had said not to get up, I quickly jumped out of my chair, went. I saw the air hostess, the flight attendant looking at me. I quickly sat next to her, put on my belt, and she looked startled, this woman. Yeah. And I put my hand on her hand. I said, consider me to be like your son. And she said, okay, she calmed down. And she, I said, are you scared? She said, I'm petrified. I said, oh, don't worry, listen everything's going to be fine. I held her hand. Now, was I hoping to get some fella, some fruit from this? Not at all. Was I looking to get some benefit? Not at all. Was I doing a good karma? Yes, I was. Why was I doing the good karma? Because it was something that just felt like something I ought to do. This is what I had learned growing up. Right. I held her hand. I held her tightly. And I said, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I said, do you say prayers? She said, yes. I could tell that she was Hindu. I started saying a prayer. She also calmed down. She was very comfortable. She, we took off. And she said, thank you so much, my son. And I said, you're welcome. She asked me about myself. I told her where medical students were going. And she then told me that she is the commissioner or director of customs of all of India. A oh, very wow. powerful position. Yeah. And she traveled regularly to go abroad in England she had three homes in London, central London, in the best localities. And she said, where are you going? I said, well, first to London and then to Paris. And she said, where are you staying in London? Where are you staying in Paris? Long story, I'll make it short. I said, we don't know. Probably in a youth hostel or maybe on the station. We'll just sleep there. We're students. So, and she said, no, no, no. Promise me you will stay in my place. I have one vacant apartment on Regent Street and you're going to stay there. I said, whoa. And she says, when you go to Paris, she says, the ambassador of Sri Lanka, Ceylon, is going to come send somebody there. He's a friend of mine to pick you up and he's going to put you up in his guest house in Paris. And we did. And wow. we had the best time ever. Now, that is known as karma, which is a result of something good I did, I got an immediate fruit. This is what we were talking about before. Sometimes right. you get this fruit immediately to, as a result to your a karma, which is a karma that you do a good deed without asking for anything in return. Sometimes you get it in this lifetime. Sometimes you get it in the next lifetime, like Mr. Frayn Selek. So you deposit your money, you get it back the same day, 
immediately by the same friendly teller in the same crisp notes, or you get it at another future time, but you do get it. Now, just like Fran Select got it, I might have gotten my rewards at another time. But it was almost as if, and Girish and I talked about it, that it was almost as if this was a lesson to us that you have to do good karmas, but always without looking for the benefit. There is this man called Edgar Casey. Casey, how do you spell it? I, I don't remember. C-A-S-E-Y, maybe Edgar. Yeah. He was... Uh, in the United States, maybe 100, 200 years ago, and he was known as the miracle man of America. He said that he could actually tell, and he did, which horse was going to win the horse races the next day or next week. He could tell which stock was going to be the best. But every time he did that, he would get severe headaches and his powers to be able to foretell this would be lessened. So he said, I can use my talents only if I don't wish for anything good for myself or for anybody else for their personal gains. So the key here is that karmas have to be done for good reasons without hope for anything uh, uh, personally. So karmas can be immediate or delayed. So for instance, I went up to this lady, Mrs. Vaidya, and I held her hand and I got immediate benefits from it. I got a place to stay, all right. expenses paid. There was food in there. I went to Paris and Mr. Uh, um, Vijay Ratne, who was the ambassador at that time, had given us a chauffeur-driven limousine that took us all over Paris. Uh, un um, unbelievable time. <laughs> and some pay off later. So for example, if I was a cigarette smoker, I may get the benefits now, but I don't pay the price until I get emphysema 20 years later. Right. I drink tons and tons of alcohol now. I get drunk. I have a great time. I laugh. I say, this is the best thing over. But 20 years later, I get cirrhosis of the liver. So bad things can happen later. So bad things happen to good people because of the bad things that they've done in the past. You must understand that what you're getting back is what you gave out at some point in the past. Now, you could cry about it and say, why me? Why me? Why does this happen to me? I wish it didn't happen to me. Or you could be grateful because your debt is settled. You say, okay, listen, this happened. I can tell you, friends, I had some rough, rough periods of time from the time I was maybe 16 and for, for a while. And at the time, I kept thinking, why is this happening to me? When is it going to end? But it always ends. It always ends and you've, yeah. you've paid off your debt. So be grateful that your debt is being settled. You can't undo it. You cannot undo your karmas, friends, unfortunately. You have to pay the price. You, people say, go and take a bath in the Ganges, River Ganges, and your sins will be washed away. Forget it, won't. <laughs> <laughs> you can say, I'm going to fast for three days. I'm not going to eat, drink anything your sins will not be washed away. You can pray, you can go to temples, churches, not gonna happen. You've got to pay the price. So you were born, remember this, you were born because of your past karmas. You have to get the benefit and you have to pay the price. You were born because of that. And each life you're given a finite amount of karmas, that's known as your prarabdha karmas. The karmas that you accumulated 
all of them, millions and millions and millions of karmas are put aside known as sanchit, means sanchit karma, accumulated karmas from the past and from lifetimes. And the prarabdha karma is that which exists in your present lifetime. So you are born because of your past karmas and you will not die until your karmas have been settled that you came into this life with. You are prarabdha karmas. So like Mr. Selak um, in Croatia, he had multiple narrow escapes. Everybody else around him died, but he did not die. Why? Because his karmas were due to be settled and it hadn't. So when somebody is behaving negatively towards you, angry, sullen, hits you, treats you badly, think to yourself, my debt is being paid. This is how I was in my past life towards him when he was that teller in the bank that was, I don't recognize him now, but at that time I was rude and nasty to him. He's being rude and nasty to me now. So if you're driving, for instance, you're driving, you're looking in your rear view mirror and you know there's a car behind you, but you don't see him. You don't get out of the car and go and fight with him and say, why aren't you in my mirror? Why can't I see you? You adjust your mirror so that you can see him. Similarly, when you're having a problem with life, you don't tell others, shouldn't, to say you change yourself. You got to yeah. change yourself and understand where you're coming. So all religions say, do unto others as you would others do unto you. And that's basically what this law of karma is. Now, another important thing is that let's say you rob a person who is very rich and you cheat him and you take away all his wealth. So he has to go from being very rich to very poor and you've taken all his money. Now, the next time you come back, you say, well, I should, he should go through that, right? But he isn't. What happens? First, in order for him to experience what he made that other guy experience, he has to have enough punya, enough good deeds for him to become a rich man. So he might have to come back many, many lifetimes, do good karmas in order for him to get to the point where he's a very rich man. It won't happen in the next life. So it doesn't happen immediately. It's not like going to Mrs. Vaidya in the plane and saying, you can stay in my London flat. He's mm -hmm. got to come back many lifetimes later, have accumulated enough good karmas to become a very rich man. And behold, along comes a guy who cheats him, takes away all his money, and he drops into great poverty. So people often ask, well, how come he went through so many lifetimes before he had to pay back? That's the reason. He had to do exactly what he did to this person. Yeah, now, there's so many karmas going on at the same time. It's not just one set. Exactly. Yeah. Millions and millions and millions of sanchita karmas, and only a few of them fall onto your plate at every lifetime as prarabdha karmas. You may say, well, how does, how do, who knows who I am? I mean, I did it this billions of other people. Now, I saw a program on TV that was fascinating. It's called the March of the Penguins. I think it's called that. Did you yeah. see that, Lou? I have, yes. So if you see how many penguins there are, and then I think the males leave the females and they go travel for miles and then they come back and you say they all look exactly the same. How are they going to find their spouses and their children? And you see this on this program called March of the Penguins, how they find their loved ones. And how do they know who? Similarly, 
doesn't matter what bad karma you do or good karma you do, you cannot get away. You will be found. So when you have, remember, the, the way it goes, you go from thought to desire to action. Mm-hmm. So when in a day you have millions of thoughts, millions of unconscious desires, they can't all be conscious because you're working during the day, you're thinking of different things, but they're all registering. Each time you look, your eyes are going everywhere. You look and say, ah, nice ice cream. Oh, look at that. I like this. I like that. And it's going in your thoughts, going into your desires. That's not erased. It's all going marked down as vrittis. And those vrittis are stored. Now you come back to life the next time, all of those vrittis have come with you. They're not all going to fructify at the same time, but they're all there as desires and they will come out. So you may say, well, why do I need to understand karma? First of all, it helps you not get depressed because you say, well, why did I suffer this? Why did I go through this? If you understand karma, you don't have that depression. You say, okay, this is what I did. I deserved it. I got this and I don't feel depressed. You also eliminate through society crime, unethical behavior, bad kind of thing. Your society is better. And there's no why me, why me? Because you say this is the act of karma. I wish more people knew about this and believed in it. Um, So Krishna says you have no, you have command over your action, but never the result. And the karma phala has hidden variables and unseen factors in every situation. So we can do our actions, which result in unforeseen um, results. So the only thing I said that I would come back to at some later point is the theoretical names of these different karmas. So karma has a drisht phala, that means a a fruit that you can see, like getting an apartment in Regent Street, immediately you see it. (laughs) And adrishta phala, adrishta means an unseen fruit that is going to come later, that is either punya, which is good, or papa, which is bad. So you're going to pay the price. So you cannot see this scientifically. You can only experience it and you can debate it. There's three kinds of karma waiting to fructify. One is a sanchita karma, which is your accumulated, collected karmas from the past lives. A prarabdha karma, which is the fructified karma that you bring to your life this time, that which has begun. And a third one called agami karma or kriyamani karma or vartaman karma, meaning the current karmas that you are creating, which are both arabda and anarabda, means sprouted already, and unarabda, means they're seeded for future. Uh, and what you're doing now in this lifetime goes either into your sanchita karma to come out later or in your prarabdha karma, which is today. So I gave you that example that should help. Now, Last thing is karma has three kinds, which is karma, vikarma, and akarma. Karma is rajasic. With the rajasic guna, you do something with expectations. If I had gone and sat next to Mrs. Vaidya with an expectation that she was going to give me something, it would have a different result. Akarma is a sattvic uh, deed, that activity with no selfishness, it helps others, not yourself, there's nothing selfish about it. And then comes vikarma, which is a t- tamasic quality, which is selfish gains for yourself with no regards to others. And the last thing I want to point out is that there are pre-contemplation, before you, before you even think about it, your gunas, 
which leads to contemplation, thought, which results in desire, which is kama, not karma, kama, K-A-M-A, like Kama Sutra, right. desire. That then recruits the sense organs, that recruits the organs of action to do something, which results in action, which is karma. So a thought, multiple thoughts, contemplation, desire, recruitment of sense organs, recruitment of organs of action, which then results in karma. Now you can stop this friends, the karma, when it comes to the point of a thought, or even maybe when it comes to a desire. Right. You can stop it at that level. It's difficult, it's not easy, but you can stop it. Once it gets to the level of the sense organs and or the organs of action, forget it, it's too late. Then it will end up in a karma and you will do whatever it is that you wanted to do. You can think of an ice cream, you can desire an ice cream and say, no, I'm not going to do it. But when you go, go to the point to the of- experiment. Yeah, back to the marshmallows. Keep, keep the marshmallows yeah. from the senses, right? That's right. Keep the marshmallows yeah. from the senses. Okay. Friends, how long has it been? Almost an hour, Lou? 53 minutes, yeah. 53. Good, good, yeah. good. Seven minutes short. So, and I hope I didn't cover it too fast. What do you think, Lou? No, it's excellent. It's fascinating, but it's going to take digestion. So feel free to listen to this episode again. And obviously feel free to listen to past episodes and catch up to where we are. But what, boy, what a fascinating uh, way to mark our hundredth episode with uh, some really in-depth discussions gives us the tools to go forward. Correct? Yes, it gives us the cool tools to go forward. I would really love to get your questions. Now, many of you write privately to me through the Facebook Messenger uh, uh, thing, and and that's yes and no. I would really like others to benefit from your questions. So, right. if you could ask the questions on Facebook or YouTube directly. I think other people can benefit also. And I really appreciate your listening and participating in this. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to do my akarmas <laughs> without selfish motive and hope that uh, you all benefit from it. 